Hello and welcome to Everyday Sublime. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm very happy to have you here today. This podcast, Everyday Sublime, endeavors to uncover, reveal, and provide reflections around spiritual practice that help uh, the individual recognize and come to perceive the everyday sublime in everyday life. So as Stephen Batchelor says, the, the sublime does not transcend this world, it saturates it. And that's really the heart of what this, the conversations and reflections shared in this podcast try to um, speak to. So today's episode is a republished conversation. Let me try that again. It's a republished conversation that I uh, taped over four years ago, which is hard to believe. But back when I just began this podcast, I was also simultaneously uh, conducting some interviews for Robert Wright's platform called Meaning of Life TV. And as the name implies, that platform is all about uh, different angles on the meaning of life, from philosophy, con uh, contemplative mysticism, uh, religion, spirituality, um, all sorts of angles looking at the question of what's the meaning of life. And uh, in giving or conducting interviews for that site, I, I was able to connect with some really interesting folks. And one of them was a professor emeritus of psychology at the University of Washington named David Barash. And as I say in this conversation, you know, as you'll hear, he's, he's written numerous books, but the one in particular that we focus on here is his book called Buddhist Biology. And this, this is a, a really interesting, uh, I found really interesting conversation where uh, David s discusses the convergences between Bo a Buddhist worldview and a biological worldview and how they both speak in different ways to this idea of an interconnected world and the implications of that interconnected world. Uh, we also get into talking about karma, the concept of karma that we see in Buddhism and how biology might echo or resonate with that conception of karma. And towards the end, uh, we start to open up uh, a particular worldview slash philosophy that David holds that he calls existential bio-Buddhism. And that's sort of a combination, that's a worldview that combines the philosophy of the existential philosophers with the kind of the ethical, uh, moral framework of Buddhism within the, the, the knowledge, truth that we, that we attain or, or, or arrive at through biology. It's a really interesting three-part or three-faceted kind of worldview. And um, we don't get into it fully in this conversation, but there's a second conversation which I'll release in the early part of next year that continues on that. So before uh, giving you that conversation today, uh, I just want to give you a couple updates. One is that I'm very happy to report that Terry and I finally have been able to successfully get Wi-Fi to our house. And functionally, what that means is that now I have a much easier time in conducting interviews uh, from my home office, uh, where I have my, my high-tech, good audio setup with a good mic and good system and everything. So I'll be, I'm now back into recording conversation interview mode, and I'm looking forward to sharing some of those, those fresh new conversations with you. But the second part is that I've also taken over the reins of producing the podcast, so all the editing and producing side of things, which is 
it turns out not to be as much as I thought it was, but it, it, it's still a significant bit of labor. Um, I'm doing that now myself, and it, it's like feels good, honest work. Um, and uh, in, in in taking over the reins, I'll it allows me to more easily republish many of these conversations that never made it to my own podcast that were recorded for the meaning of life meaning of life platform. So uh, there's at least a half a dozen to ten or so really rich conversations that will be dripped out over the next several months um, from that archive. But um, going forward, I'm really excited to have new conversations and continued conversations. I, I both love interviewing people that are new to me, but I also like having uh, cyclical or um, ongoing conversations with many of my colleagues and, and pursuing deeper and deeper conversations and conversational topics with those friends of mine. So this is all part of the evolution of the podcast. Uh, it's feeling good. I'm happy to be back, uh, both able to record and now able to produce myself. So I look forward to new episodes, and I hope you enjoy today's conversation. Without further ado, I now bring you David Barash. Hi, David. Hi, Josh. How are you doing? Doing fine. Looking forward to our conversation. Me too. Let me introduce us. I am Josh Summers, a Boston-based uh, meditation and yoga teacher, and you are David Barash, an evolutionary biologist and a professor of psychology at University of Washington. So far, correct? Absolutely. Great. You've also authored numerous books. Wikipedia says approximately 30. I thought that was an interesting um, qualifier. <laughs> Just approximately 30. But the book you've written that we're going to be discussing today is called Buddhist Biology, Ancient Eastern Wisdom Meets Modern Western Science. And as the title of the book suggests, we'll be discussing how uh, Buddhism and biology converge, possibly how they diverge. But as an opening question for you, or uh, point point of inquiry, I can imagine that a hardcore biologist, someone say like Richard Dawkins, might not necessarily be very amenable to uh, hearing that biology might benefit from a Buddhist insight around his field. And I can also imagine a hardcore Buddhist not really being that interested in any kind of biological insight around his uh, strenuous striving for inner peace. So as an opening question, uh, obviously I think you think that uh, these two fields can benefit from dialogue with one another. Um, and what is that benefit that you see? Well, that's a big question. And I've, um, the, the, the book as a whole is an effort to try to get my arms around that benefit. Um, I know Richard Dawkins really quite well. I actually knew him before he wrote um, The Selfish Gene, and we've maintained our friendship ever since. I'm also, so I'm very much a biologist. I'm also, I describe myself as an aspiring Buddhist, which uh, some may consider an oxymoron, since according to some people, Buddhists are not supposed to aspire, or at least not not yearn too strongly. Um, I think they do contribute a great deal to each other. Um, to, To my biologist friends, I would emphasize that at least as far as my perception is concerned, the value of Buddhism is not as a, quote, religion, close quote, as such. I'm really not terribly inspired by or interested in the the, um, uh, the metaphysical aspects or the clearly religious aspects of Buddhism. I think what Buddhism offers 
to biology and frankly to everyone else is is a philosophy essentially a way of looking at the world and particularly looking at life that is very open to empiricism and very open to um experience and knowledge and wisdom and does not imply the supernatural now there are components of buddhism that do involve the supernatural and frankly um that's where buddhism and i part company but i think when it comes to some of the fundamental underlying concepts of buddhism if you exclude the supernatural there's a great deal that is relevant that is in fact altogether consistent with biology um so do you sort of i mean one one phrase that came to mind when i was reading your book is i felt like you were you're taking kind of a biological scalpel to buddhism and and sort of extracting the supernatural stuff and what was left you found had convergence with a, a biological sensibility around things yeah, that's absolutely right. I, I take as a as a um, model of sorts the so-called Jefferson Bible, mm-hmm. where, where Thomas Jefferson famously or infamously, according to some people, took a literally a scissors to the Bible and removed references to the supernatural, but retained those components that spoke of ethics and wisdom. And I think one can and should do the same thing with with any belief tradition. Right. And with regard to Buddhism, it's not so much a matter of belief as it is a matter of proposed wisdom and the suggestion that we look into it and see whether it works. And with regard to that, I think there are a number of components, which I imagine we'll, we'll, we'll start talking about now, in which Buddhism really does converge um, in, in a really extraordinary way with biology. There's a, there are three primary components, mm-hmm. at least as far as I'm concerned. One is so-called anatman, which is the, the lack of self or selfness, self, non-self. Um, anitya, which is impermanence. And here's a longer word, pratitya samutpada, which is basically interconnectedness. Each of those, well, all three of those are, um, they interpenetrate with each other. And they also very much help to um, help to clarify some really important concepts in biology. We're talking about hardcore concepts like genetics, physiology, ecology, etc. So yeah, let's. I wanted to get into those. Um, So let's maybe start with the first. Um, I'm more of an early Buddhist uh, student, so I use anicca, but you use the Sanskrit anitya. Anitya, either yeah, one so, so both both these words uh, are used to are translated to mean non-self or the doctrine of non-self, and well, yeah, that's uh, we're talking about anatman is would be non-self. Oh, and what did you say? I said anitya. Oh, sorry, sorry, an, an, anatta. Sorry, I, I got my anatta. Thanks for catching that. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So we're, we're dealing with the doctrine of non-self and. Um, Kind of the paradox around this, uh, one of the paradoxes is that a lot of people, I think, that get drawn to Buddhism or Buddhist practice in a modern context are actually usually going for sort of self-help reasons. <laughs> that is an interesting <laughs> and, paradox. And, and then they, they discover that a core teaching of this thing that they're following is uh, that there is no self or that the thing that they take to be self is really non-self. And um, it kind of be, can get summed up in a recent New Yorker cartoon I saw where a guy was going into a bookstore looking for a book on Vipassana, which is a style of Buddhist meditation. And the clerk says, Vipassana, that's in the no self-help section. <laughs> <laughs> so it, this is really one of the slipperiest, most confusing, maybe core teachings of the Buddha. Um, 
so help uh, help me unpack that. What what when you when when you hear non-self, what does that mean from a biological okay. or philosophical perspective? Sure. Let me let me emphasize first what it does not mean because I think this is often confusing, particularly for Westerners. It does not mean that Buddhists claim that you don't exist or that I don't exist, that we don't have a name and a place and we're surrounded by skin and we can be identified as such and that we have memories as to our past and expectations as to our future. I mean, even the Dalai Lama, when he buys a ticket or someone buys him a plane ticket, it has his name on it and he sits down on a seat and there's no, Buddhists aren't fools. We, we, there, there's no question that individuals exist in the simple, direct, literal sense. But what, um, what is significant for Buddhists and for biologists is not that individuals as such can't be identified, but rather that individuals don't exist in a fundamental, meaningful sense, that we are fundamentally meaningful, meaningfully and genuinely connected to the rest of the world in such a way that to make a separation between us and the rest of the world is itself an artifice and mm. profoundly misleading. Um, let me give you two metaphors that are, um, I think, useful to, to understand this. One would be, think about what does it mean to get a hold of one's self as a, uh, a piece of fruit? Um, you know, we are not an apricot, for instance, where you cut away the outside and then you get to this hard kernel of independent selfhood, which I guess many people in Western religious traditions would identify as a soul. Right. Um, for Buddhists and biologists, there is no hard core in there. It's more like an onion. You, you keep peeling away layers, uh, but eventually you find that there is nothing there that is distinct from everything else. There is no hard, independent core. Uh, another metaphor that I think is helpful is that of a, um, a whirlpool in a, in a river or a stream. Mm -hmm. You look at the whirlpool and it exists, just like you exist and I exist and those people watching this video exist and know that they do. On the other hand, where is the whirlpool? What is it? It doesn't have a separate independent existence. It is literally a function of material energy and matter passing through a given structure of sorts that we identify as a whirlpool and it's real if you're in a, in a canoe and it's a big whirlpool you you want to be aware of it and watch out for it but it does not have an independent existence and in that sense we delude ourselves by thinking we have independent existences and this is something that e ecologists are very aware of is that you can't really study for instance a single bison if you want to understand mm -hmm. the evolution of bisons or how they work or what they are, how they came to be, you have to look at the, the bison-prairie interaction and that of many different bisons and wolves and the entire ecosystem. And in that literal sense, ourselves are parts of an ecosystem and really only maximally meaningful when we recognize that. So again, anatman, not-self, does not mean the simplistic notion that we, we simply don't exist and we're all deluded. It means that we don't exist in those rigid categories that much of Western thought has induced people to expect. Right, so there's the lack of separate, clear separation. Our sense of self that we have is deeply embedded in an ecosystem from which it emerges. It's not separate from that. Um, 
you also write about how there's a the, the intuitive sense, I think, or sort of more of a psychological intuitive sense that there's a homunculus inside our brain, you know, that <laughs> this, this, this CEO that's able to control the levers of things, that, that that very strong intuitive sense that I think a lot of people have also in itself is um, not permanent or it's not unchanging and it's also dependent on a variety of factors for its arising. Yeah, and it's misleading, too. It's profoundly misleading, the image of somehow a little green dude inside our head that is that is the controller. Um, it reminds me, there's a wonderful scene in the movie Men in Black in which uh, there's a, a corpse comes into a morgue and they open up the head and inside the, the corpse turned out to be not really a human but a robot and there's a little Martian type green dude inside the head who's actually doing things. But of course then you'd have to ask, well, what's inside the, the, the green dude's head? And so the, the idea again, it's not just ecology for instance and evolution but neurobiology too speaks very directly to the fact that there is no hard single core of selfhood, that our, our neurons, our brains are a function of an interconnected network. Mm-hmm. Right. By the way, you, 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 uh, you introduced a lovely joke, Josh, from the New Yorker cartoon. There's another joke I particularly like. It wasn't from the New Yorker, but it, the, the, uh, um, um, what the, the question arises, what did the Buddhist uh, say to the hot dog vendor? And it is, make me one with everything. <laughs> and of course, it's it's not quite a joke. I mean, we really are one with everything. Right. Uh, but again, that can be a. Um, it's almost too easy to say. And after having said that, it's all too easy to go on and ignore the wisdom behind that. But there is profound wisdom behind that, right? And I think that's. I mean, this is one of the themes that I wanted to explore with you. Is that um, biology seems to take a kind of uh, objective. Uh, study of the world that there's a that there's a, this, this this world out there that can be examined through uh, the eye and the lens or the instruments of the eye and and sort of observed objectively and Buddhist practice um, the sort of, sort of the epistemological process is more subjective you're not looking externally as as much there's more of an internal process of examining your inner experience and um, through the subjective experience, gaining insight about the way things are. Um, and c- kind of picking up on what you just said, I, I think the biological knowledge that is arrived at tends to give a kind of cognitive, intellectual understanding of things, which doesn't necessarily get its way down into one's bones in terms of under, like really living from that truth or living from that direct perception that you are intimately non-separate from everything that is. Yeah, I, th- that's absolutely right. And um, I have to confess that in terms of whatever wisdom I have to convey um, does not speak directly to the question of subjective experience. Um, that looking at, for me, looking at biology and Buddhism um, as very much a scientist and frankly an atheist, um, my interest and concern, and I think what I have to offer, mm-hmm. is more the the, the 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 convergence with regard to these objective truths. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the issue of 
subjectivity is one in which there isn't that much convergence, as far as I can see, between Buddhism and science. Um, there certainly is some, but I think the, the, uh, that's one of the areas, and there are other areas, too, where I think a scientific discipline like biology and a um, obviously somewhat more spiritual discipline like Buddhism do tend to diverge rather than converge. I, well, I'm into the subjective, but I don't think I have a whole lot of wisdom to convey about that. Well, yeah, well, let me frame it differently. I mean, I think that the, in Buddhism, the, um, the, the philosophy emerges out of subjective experience. Right. Right? Sure. So, right. so you're, you're, you're finding overlap between the, like biology and these, these doctrines of Buddhism that, 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 are, that are convergent. Um, but but those, those Buddhist views are emerging out of direct subjective um, sense of things. Right, absolutely, yeah. And, and, and that's where I think a lot of that wisdom came from. But um, as far as I'm concerned, what's of greater interest and practical value in terms of conveying to others is that wisdom itself, that perception, regardless of where it came. Um, okay, whether so it came from purely think... subjective experience or from empirical studies. Right. I think part of this question is going to resurface when we come back to the issue of engagement and, mm-hmm. and how does one live uh, moving forward from these truths or, or influenced and informed by these truths. Um, the next core doctrine um, I think you talk about in the book, actually it might be impermanence, but that one I feel like is, is fairly easy to grok for most people, the idea that like everything's changing. And you know, as most of my Buddhist teachers say, you know, to know that things are changing doesn't really profoundly ch- change much. You have to really know it deeply inside of you and like sort of a DNA level to, to really have um, some change in your life be affected by that truth. Um, the one that I also find very interesting, though, is this, the, the teaching that Paticca Samuppada, or Right. How did you say it in Sanskrit? Patitya Samutpata, but I've heard it pronounced in many different ways. Right. And this is, I have heard the translation as, as dependent, the teaching of dependent origination. Right, right. Or dependent co-arising. Dependent co-arising, right. right. Which isn't really um, all that different in a certain sense from the anatta teaching. Right, it's sort of saying that instead, of, it's sort of going from the micro level of the individual or the self to more of a broader global level. That nothing, the Buddhists essentially saying, nothing arises independently of anything else, or everything arises due to certain causes and conditions. Nothing arise, arises um, e- exclusively on its own. Absolutely, and that it connects uh, what I call an- anatman and and anicca as well. Impermanence. These are all intimately interconnected they're examples of of that interconnection and that the, the dependent co-arising if you will um that, that absolutely and uh, so sorry. well you know in the early buddhist teaching um which i know you know that that doctrine is used to sort of give a very detailed analysis about how sort of individual suffering arises and then comes to cease. Whether that you take that in sort of a psychological le- level, like it's how your own distress arises and then comes to cease, you see all the factors that co-arise with, with that arising of, of distress. Or if you take it in more of a sort of a the, sort of the supernatural metaphysical level of reincarnation, how you come to be reborn again and again and again, that cycle is meant to describe that process or the, or the mechanism by which that thing, that, that process comes about. But 
in later Buddhism, it sort of takes on a flavor of interbeing or, or deeply inter, deep interconnection with the web, all of the web of life. And I was wondering if you could speak to that development or, uh, or the implications of that development. Sure. I think it's, I'm, I'm glad you raised that because one of the interesting um, divergences, at least early, between early Buddhism and modern, if I will, we could call it ethics or modern biology, is that the notion of dependent co-arising or codependent uh, or origination, there are lots of terms for this, was actually seen by the early Buddhists and to a large extent the Buddha himself apparently as a trap, as a problem as something that uh, um, individual practitioners, if you put quotes around individual, I suppose, that, that practitioners would be well advised to escape from, that the world was a dangerous place full of mm-hmm. uh, misleading connections that we need to sever. Um, and that was part of early Buddhism. It wasn't the only part, but it certainly was part. More recently, the notion of interbeing uh, as it's been developed by current Buddhist practitioners, and, and one can trace history of this as well, turns that around to some extent and says by virtue of this interconnection and by virtue of our profound connectedness to other things, um, this implies to a very large extent a kind of obligation upon individuals to behave in a way that maximizes the well-being of all things, um, now, for the, one of the classic lines in Buddhism, of course, is for the benefit of all sentient beings. Right. Um, I'm not sure how one separates sentience from non-sentience among, certainly among living things. I'm not one of these people who believes that the universe itself is sentient, or that rocks are sentient, or that uh, we part company there. Right. Um, but I do think that many other living things are sentient to various degrees. Brussels sprouts. Our, I'm sorry. Brussels sprouts, for instance. Brussels, yes, exactly. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't put a whole lot of faith in the in the consciousness of Brussels sprouts. Although they're certainly responsive when they're alive and growing. Um, whether they perceive themselves as alive and growing, I rather doubt. But I, I do think we have an obligation to all living things, and perhaps an obligation that increases in proportion as those living things do possess a kind of sentience. Just define sentience, sentience for me. It's, it's, uh, it's, I'm trying, I know I, I've used the term so many times. It's, I'm like, what does that actually refer to at the moment? I was afraid you were going to ask that. <laughs> actually, I, I think, to my mind, sentience is synonymous with consciousness. And consciousness, again, is not an easy thing to define. Um, my, I have a number of animals, and my animals, particularly dogs and cats and horses, are highly aware of their environment, in many cases much more aware than I am, much more attuned to any number of things going on. I'm not sure they're conscious in, or sentient in the human sense, in, insofar as being aware of being aware. Yeah, self-conscious. Or self- self-awareness, self-consciousness, and that would be my sense of, of what sentience implies. Okay. Um, so in the book, you then, in examining these core sort of Buddhist tenets of non-self change or impermanence and dependent origination, um, you then move into sections on engagement, sort of, which you just were hinting at, sort of engagement beyond, um, these philosophies into how do these inform your life? How do they, or how do they, how do they 
create a kind of philosophy towards life. Yeah, I, I think here um, here we get a, a very explicit, maybe not explicit, implicit um, wisdom and suggestions for Im- literal implications for for rather than to withdraw the classic image of the Himalayan sage up there alone on the mountain or in a cave somewhere um, is one way of responding to connectedness by by feeling again that that connectedness is a trap but i think a far more for my mind more meaningful and more salutary response is to engage that engagement with regard to how one lives mm-hmm. um and and this raises among other things another important concept both in um buddhism and in um biology or ethics which has to do with karma now Karma is perceived by many people in the West uh, is some sort of uh, uh, history that we drag along with us based not only on our past behaviors, but on the past activities of our ancestors. Um, If you take that sense literally uh, from Buddhism, it does not make sense in biology as far as I'm concerned. On the other hand, if you take karma to mean, as the Dalai Lama himself suggested, literally cause and effect, the doctrine of cause and effect, that what one does has consequences. What you have done has consequences. And in fact, what your ancestors did has consequences. As an evolutionary biologist, we can say that what our ancestors did has consequences in terms of which genes were promoted into the future, into future generations, some of which wound up in you and me and those watching this video, as opposed to others. So there is a karmic consequence literally at the level of DNA. Um, and so we, are, we do carry around karma, not, I think, because of our literal behavior in past lives, but because of the behavior of our ancestors and those genes that were promoted by virtue of that, and that also imply what's going to happen in the future. So the notion of karma, as far as I'm concerned, is really intimately connected to the notion of responsibility. Yeah, and um, picking up on that, Part of what you get in the book is that you, you introduce this idea of um, part of freedom is in some ways being disobedient to the impulses that we've inherited through, you could say, our genetic karma. Does that sound yeah. like a fair characterization? Absolutely, yes. Um, I mean, Richard Dawkins in, in his Selfish Gene, a book with which I very much identify, um, concluded by pointing out that we alone among living things may have the ability to say no to our selfish genes, that we have a degree of um, personal freedom, free will. Uh, And that's very consistent with the Buddhist conception as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And so part of our karma, ironically, as human beings, I think possibly unique in the living world, is the ability to define ourselves and choose our own path of life. Within limits, clearly. Right, I mean, we right. can't live like a Brussels sprout uh, or, or a honeybee. Um, but within the confines, if you will, of being a human being, um, we are, as Jean-Paul Sartre pointed out, condemned to be free, which is an, a fascinating irony in itself. In its literal sense, we have no choice but to be free. Right. So this this gets us to the, the sort of the concluding chapter um, in your in your book where you lay out a little a kind of a manifesto for uh, engaged living or philosophy for life um, 
moving out from from these philosophies and you you bring together this interesting trifecta of existentialism biology and buddhism i think you call it existential bio buddhism yeah i think it's i don't believe that term had ever been coined before for right. better or worse i don't know why that wasn't the title of the book well, <laughs> did the publishers think- give you pushback on that I did. <laughs> I actually did suggest, in fact, precisely that. But both both my agent and the publisher felt that that would be just it's terrifying for many potential readers, although I'd like to think it would be appealing for, for, for others. Um, it certainly describes what I'm what I'm getting at. And I'm glad you pointed it out as a a trifecta. That's the way I hope it will be perceived. Right. And so what, what is, what does each bring to bear in your, in your view on um, sort of creating a philosophy for life? Okay. Well, I guess what needs to be added here, and we've talked some about biology and Buddhism, what needs to be added specifically then would be existentialism here. Um, and in some ways, existentialism superficially seems to go quite counter to a biological perspective. Right. Um, the, the, some of the classic statements in existentialism are that human beings are, uh, Simone de Beauvoir said that uh, human beings are lettre dont lettre et de netre pas, which is that the human beings are those beings whose being is having no being. Um, and, but what that, that sounds which, Buddhist. <laughs> yeah, right. It does. It's, it's certainly B- Buddhist, but it's not very biological since bio- biology would emphasize, among other things, our genomes. I mean, we, we do inherit a genome. We have a genome. There's a kind of being there, for sure. But what, that, what the existentialists emphasize, among other things, that I think is really relevant here, is the freedom to define ourselves. First of all, I should add, it, it, it emphasizes the role of subjective experience, as you raised earlier, uh, which is very important for, for an existential perspective. Um, and also the notion, really important notion, that we define ourselves by how we live and what we, be, what we believe to be true of ourselves is really not nearly as relevant as what we actually do with ourselves. Right. This and actually so- resonates with, a, 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 I remember a Buddhist chant that I remember having to do on a retreat once where something about, it was a, a chant around karma where you repeat, like, I am the owner of my action, heir to my action, this kind of thing. I am defined by the kinds of actions I make with my life. Precisely, yes. And that's, and, and I think that's really key. It's key to Buddhism. It's key to existentialism. Um, it also, to my mind, helps to overcome what is one of the potential ethical problems with existentialism, which is, um, at least in terms of the sort of modern French flavor of existentialism, um, there's very little within that philosophy itself, there's actually very little that specifies what we should do, how we should behave. It's more a function that in order to avoid what, what they call bad faith, we need to behave in a manner that is intentional mm-hmm. and conscious. Right. There's no direction. There's no directive around how you behave. It's just that you that you behave consciously. Exactly. And if you follow that precept, if you will, that could equally well be used to um, to buttress uh, a perspective that I would find really anathema: a far right wing, anti environmental, anti human rights anti-life perspective, if that's the way you believe and that's the way you behave, then more power to you. Um, now, interestingly, Sartre himself and Camus and others um, 
were in fact generally rather, in fact, fairly significantly socially engaged rather than disengaged. But it took a little bit of a wiggle for them to justify, if we're really free, what is the basis then for validating one kind of behavior over Mm -hmm. another? Um, And I think the basis that, at least that I come up with and that I would urge others to seriously consider, is if you look at interconnectedness, given the reality, the fundamental deep reality of interconnectedness, then the question of how we should behave to some extent answers itself. It it speaks, among other things, to what's often referred to as the golden rule, you know, the notion of treating others as you would like them to treat you, and recognizing, if you recognize the interconnectedness between yourself and others and and other living things and maybe the planet as a whole, um, then to some extent you have your marching orders, or if not orders, at least you have uh, a direction and suggestions that I think are really quite meaningful. Yeah, and connected to that, there's, I often have heard that um, sort of advanced meditators, whether it's the Dalai Lama or these advanced spiritual teachers, uh, it's not that they've said it themselves, but it's sort of said about them that they that their sense of self has identified not with their their individual body and mind, or indi- like with their individual national culture or anything like that. It's actually their their sense of self has has expanded so far that it's inclusive of the entire planet, if you will, or the biosphere. Um, and so they sort of are responding to things on that level. Um, yeah, and, and I, I've, yeah, I'm sorry. No, no, I just is is. Well, I, 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 I find that admirable and. More than admirable, I find that really in touch with some fundamental, one of the, maybe the fundamental truth of science and of of the, of the, the cosmos, at the risk of sounding grandiose. One of my favorite Buddhist teachers, the Vietnamese uh, master, Thich Nhat Hanh. Thich Nhat Hanh, yeah. Yeah, wrote very effectively at one point about, uh, well, of course, he was talking about in the old days when they, we actually had paper, and he, he was writing on paper, and uh, in the book he said, if you look at this paper, if you are an ecologist or if you are a master of one sort or another, you can see the cloud in this piece of paper. Of course, there is, there is a cloud in the paper. The paper came from trees. The trees only grew by virtue of water and clouds. And of course, there's not just clouds. There's the logger and there's the, there's the, the, the gasoline that powered the chainsaw, and there's the logger's lunch. And the notion of things being contained within everything else is, um, I think, a profound statement, not only of biological and Buddhistic truth, but one that should power, to some extent, our own, the, the ethics of our own behavior. Right. Um, within that trifecta, uh, do you see, as I'm listening to you talk, it strikes me that Buddhism, in a way, kind of strikes a middle ground between the objective reality that's revealed through biological science and sort of the existential imperative to act from freedom or from conscious choice that Buddhism in a way in the middle gives one a direct subjective sense of those biological truths. Like you you feel the bio, like sort of the inherited karma of your genes and the, the impulses to to run away from something or to hoard something or to, to you know, to, to act out on these sort of uh, 
well, the three poisons that are referred to in Buddhism, the greed, hatred, and delusion, um, you sort of acknowledge them enough so that you're able to create a space between yourself, your action, and, and those impulses, and act from greater freedom. Right. Yes, I think that's really true. Um, I think one of the important take-home messages that I'd like to convey, um, and at the risk of sound, I don't want to conclude by sounding negative, but would be, I I mean it in a positive vein, would be against fundamentalisms, uh, whatever the source of those fundamentalisms. And I think uh, even science, biology can be fall victim to a kind of fundamentalism in terms of its its emphasis on reductionism, although I think much of what we learn comes from reductionism, but not all. Mm-hmm. And I would I would sort of caution against that, and I would caution against a Buddhist-based fundamentalism as well. And in that sense, it's very consistent with your point that I, I think what is a useful take-home message is the freedom or even the obligation that we have to take wisdom and insight where we can get it without necessarily feeling that we have to sign on to everything if there are some aspects that don't uh, that aren't consistent with our own intuitions mm-hmm. and i think in that sense buddhism i guess you could call it buddhism light buddhism with the, without the supernatural um but the Buddha himself said, I'm not a god and I should not be worshipped. Although if you go to Asia, as I have and I mentioned many have, you find people worshipping the statue of the Buddha as though he were a god. And you find people worshipping a kind of scientism too, as right. though it's the equivalent of a secular god. And I think we need to take a, a, a coherent view of all of these things. Yeah, and very much in line with that, I think uh, one of the points I took from your book was that these systems, whether it's biology, Buddhism, or existentialism, any of these systems, are also subject to anatta, anicca, and that's right, and paticca samuppada themselves, that they are changing, that they're not permanent, they're not separate from, them, from other conditions, and that they are going to be developing and evolving as they go. Yeah, one of the fascinating, one of the things I love about Thich Nhat Hanh's uh, order of interbeing is that one of his fundamental precepts is don't accept any precepts as necessarily and automatically true, including this one, <laughs> which is great fun. <laughs> it is great fun. David, I really want to thank you for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Your book, Buddhist Biology, is a f- tremendous read. I re- highly recommend it. Um, and just thanks so much. Thank you, Josh. I enjoyed it, too. Okay, everyone, I hope you enjoyed that interview with David Brosh. I, I find David to be eminently easy to listen to and just, just a wonderful interlocutor. So it, it was a great pleasure to chat with him, and I, I hope that his reflections and, and some of the things he shared really help you start to perceive the everyday sublime in your own life. Um, in, the, in the show notes, there's a link to his book. So if, you're, if you'd like to read his book, Buddhist Biology, please check that out. And um, final note before I say goodbye is that if you'd like to support the podcast, please head over to Josh Summers forward slash Sangha. Actually, it's joshsummers.net forward slash Sangha, S-A-N-G-H-A. And there at joshsummers.net forward slash Sangha, you can, you can register to become a member in our online practice community. And this will give you access to 
weekly live classes with me and Terry. It will also give you access to a very rich library, an online library with archived classes, over 100 classes archived there. I also have workshops that I've given on yin yoga and the cultivation of chi and meditation. And Terry has a whole variety of tutorials geared towards um, learning qigong, various yoga poses, as well as uh, ways of using props and things. So uh, if you're interested in a low-key but integrally informed spiritual life practice, so an integral practice that involves your body, your energy, your mind, uh, if you're interested in something like that, please check out the Sangha. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to have you join. And it is the easiest way with a variety of um, very modest membership levels to support the work that we're doing both in the podcast and in our teaching. So we thank you in, in advance for that support. It means a huge amount to us and uh, just want to say we really appreciate it. Okay, until next episode, please stay safe, stay strong, keep practicing, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Take good care.